uh, announcements. The only announcement I'm aware of is that uh, uh, Jeff is hiding somewhere. Either God is speaking to us or... Oh, it's Jeff. Okay. Okay, uh, this Friday night at 7.30, correct? That's what I said on Sunday, so... 7.30 uh, film night over at um, Grace Bible Church for the teenagers. They knew and were set for this event before we started announcing because they got the word all spread through Facebook and whatever from... Uh, so we're just slow and bringing, bringing up the rear. Okay. Um, any other announcements? No? You can't think of anything? Seems like there was one I was. Tomorrow, tomorrow I believe, is uh, Israel's Independence Day. Hmm? Well, May 14th on the Gregorian calendar, but it, it always, it's, their Independence Day is on the Israel, Jewish calendar, and that comes up, um, wait a minute, I've got it over here. That, I believe, is, uh, starts tomorrow, tomorrow night. Yes, tomorrow all day is uh, actually would start this evening is what was called Ham Hazikaron, which is Memorial Day. They have their Memorial Day for all of the fallen Israeli soldiers, like our Memorial Day, the day before their Independence Day. I thought that that is a a, a good way to do it because you're remembering those who gave their lives for your independence. At the same time, you're remembering your independence. So uh, <clears throat> their Memorial Day began, begins this evening, and then tomorrow evening at sunset, Yom HaAtzmaut, which is their Independence Day, begins. So pay attention to the uh, pay attention to the news. A lot of uh, interesting things are going on. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lead not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to focus on the word. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace, for the fact that uh, from Genesis 3 down through Revelation 22, we have uh, testimony upon every page of Scripture of your grace, your goodness, your undeserved merit, 
and that there is no deed of righteousness, no uh, work of righteousness, no deed of tzedakah uh, uh, that we can ever do that uh, merits your righteousness. For as Isaiah the prophet pointed out, all our works of righteousness, our uh, deeds of tzedakah are as filthy rags. And there is nothing that uh, uh, we can do to ever gain your approval. You have to do it all for us. You give us the free gift of righteousness. And that comes by trusting in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty in our place for our sin. Now, Father, as we study your word and we look back on this uh, remarkable time of the expansion of the early church uh, out from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria, we pray that you would uh, help us to see the principles that are here that uh, speak to us down through the ages, give us uh, parallels, examples, and principles for our Christian life today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 8. And we will be traveling throughout much of the Scripture uh, this evening as I go through these first eight uh, these first eight verses. Now, the as <clears throat> we pointed out in our study and of the survey last week, as I did uh, uh, reviewing the first seven chapters and looking at the next uh, four or five chapters, is that there is a an the emphasis in the book of Acts is on the spread of the gospel. This is based upon uh, Acts 1.8 and God's mandate to the apostles to, to, that the Holy Spirit would come and give them power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So it is uh, inappropriately titled the Acts of the Apostles really should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we see the role of the Holy Spirit here in uh, this this chapter. And in this chapter, we see the shift out from Jerusalem to Samaria. And this is a striking expansion northward into Samaria. And we're going to take a little more time tonight to understand why this is so uh, shocking and would have been so arresting in terms of grabbing the attention of the Jews in the first century when this happened. This is revolutionary what happens in the first eight verses, but most of us just don't get it because we're not familiar enough with the uh, history and the background of the culture uh, of that time. And as familiar as I was to one degree in going back over some things the last few days, I've become familiar to a greater degree. As I pointed out last time, the basic outline or the structure uh, is seen in this chart. The first part of the of the book deals with uh, the witness in Jerusalem to Jews. The church is primarily Jewish, and Peter is the key individual in those first seven chapters. And chapters 8 through 12, the scene shifts. It moves out. Peter is still a focus. Philip and Peter are the two, really the two key leaders, and the geographical focus is now out from Jerusalem into Judea uh, and Samaria. The outline for the book, as I pointed out, the first seven chapters, God, through the Holy Spirit, authenticates, empowers, and directs the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice something I've done here, and I didn't mention this last time, but in much of the Bible, we have stories. We have narrative. That's the key word in postmodernism. Everything's a narrative. We have stories. We have history. 
And what makes good history is you always have a tension between the hero and the enemy. And the ultimate hero in all of the narrative, all the history you read in the Bible is always God. And so I always try to write my outlines for biblical books where God is the one who's the subject. He's the hero. He's the one who's ultimately doing uh, all of the, the work and working behind the scenes to bring about his plan and his purpose. So we see in the first seven chapters, God through the Holy Spirit, authenticating, empowering, and directing the apostles' witness in Jerusalem. And then in this, this second division, God is the one who, through bringing, allowing persecution to develop, uh, expands the witness of the church into Judea and Samaria. This is what Jesus had mandated in Acts 1-8. Of course, the uh, apostles just wanted to sit in their comfort zone like most of us, and rather than uh, getting off of their gluteus maximus and taking the word out, they were happy just staying where they were in Jerusalem and not getting outside of their comfort zone. And so this persecution breaks out after the stoning of Stephen. That is an intense intense persecution. And as a result of that, everyone, which doesn't mean every single Christian in Jerusalem, but just as we use the word all or everyone to refer to a large number of people or a majority many times, uh, a vast majority had to leave Jerusalem just to seek someplace where they would have a little stability and a little less pressure and persecution, except for the apostles. They're still based uh, primarily in, in Jerusalem. And so we have a map here on the left that <clears throat> gives us the basic uh, geographical division here of the uh, land of Israel, the Holy Land. You know why it's called the Holy Land? Some people have made fun of that. Holy means what? Kadosh, it means set apart. This is the only piece of real estate set apart for God and for his people in the whole world. So it is, despite the fact that it has, it was probably developed in the Middle Ages for uh, somewhat less than correct reasons, it is a legitimately correct title. It's not holy because the land is special in some mystical sense, which is uh, how it developed in the Middle Ages, but it is special because it is the land that God has set apart in the Abrahamic covenant for the Jewish people. The uh, southern area down here, the southern region, is Edomia. Uh, this was the where the Edomites were from. These were the descendants of Esau. They had settled in that area. Herod's family came from that area. Uh, it is part of the overall region of Judea, but Judea is part of the uh, sort of the Roman, the title for the Roman province. And all of this area that you see shaded in green from Caesarea by the sea here, some of you who will be on the trip to Israel in a couple of months will be uh, staying here at Caesarea by the sea the first night that we that were there. Uh, this whole green area here is the Roman province of Judea, which comprised Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. And Samaria is the focal point of our uh, of our study today. So the command was to start in Jerusalem and then take the gospel to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So our focus here is on Samaria. Samaria is what was referred to in the Old Testament as the northern kingdom of Israel. The capital of... Uh, of Samaria was the city 
of Samaria, so that until the days of Herod the Great, the term Samaria referred to both the city and uh, and the, uh, the the region or the territory of Samaria. But in 27 BC, Herod the Great decided to rename the capital uh, Sebaste, which is the Greek form for Augusta, and he named it in honor of uh, Caesar Augustus. So you have a lot of these towns like Caesarea was named for for the Roman Caesar. Sebaste uh, was named for the Roman Caesar. And this is uh, this was very common in order to, you know, just sort of uh, brown nose with the uh, leader back in Rome so they could get favor with him. You have um, uh, Sebaste and then the other major town, Sychar, which is where the woman at the well, Jesus encountered the woman at the well in John chapter 4, uh, took place there at Sychar, which is right at the base of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. We'll talk about them a little a little later on. But this is the area uh, that, we're, that we're talking about. Uh, north of Samaria was the area of Galilee. Then across the Jordan, this is uh, the Sea of Galilee up here, or Kinneret, the lake. And then here you have the Jordan River flowing down to the Dead Sea. The area across the Jordan was known as Perea. And if you were Jewish and you had to travel from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, rather than going through Samaria because you hated the Samaritans and they hated the Jews, you crossed over the Jordan River into Perea, and then you traveled north on the east side of the Jordan, and then when you got up towards the Sea of Galilee somewhere, you would cross back over uh, into Galilee. Now, as we get into... As we get into... These verses, let me just read the first part. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is the death of Stephen, and at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at um, at Jerusalem. So it's located, sees the church primarily at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. So it's at this point that... Uh, we see this persecution develop, and the summary is given there in verse 1. And I'm going to skip through that. Okay, in Acts 8.1, we see the 1 through 4. We're told then specifically that in 8.2, devout men carried Stephen to his burial. These were some of the uh, spiritual leaders of the church, carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, so now we get back to Saul, he made havoc of the church, uh, entering in every house and dragging off men and women, committing them uh, to prison. And the point here is that Saul began to destroy the church. The idea there in the New King James, he made havoc of the church. It probably has more of a an inceptive sense. That's a grammatical term for beginning something. He began to make havoc or, or uh, he began to destroy uh, the church, talking about his attempt to to intimidate uh, people, it's from a, a, a Greek word uh, that is uh, a, only used here in, this, in the New Testament, but it also appears in the Old Testament in the Septuagint in Psalm 80, verse 13, describing how a wild boar would get into a vineyard and destroy the vineyard. So you can get a picture in your mind of a wild boar and the kind of damage 
that it would do as it just ran amok in a vineyard digging up the soil and destroying all of the vines and and creating a mess. This is the image that uh, Luke is evoking for us when we uh, when he talks about what the apostle Paul was doing to the church. He is uh, intimidating, scaring, bullying, arresting. Uh, they were they were being beaten, thrown into jail, and it was an intense persecution against the believers in Jerusalem. So the best thing was to leave so that they could go someplace where they could continue to live their lives with some measure of peace and with some measure of economic stability, carry on their business. And so they were being driven out of Jerusalem. But this was also God's plan. So remember the principle that when bad things seem to be happening, uh, God is the one who works all things together for good, and he is probably using that in order to bring about opportunities for us uh, to minister in the lives of others and to uh, communicate the gospel. And we're told uh, that uh, they, as a result of this, those who are scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, there's a couple of interesting words in here we ought to pay attention to, and the first word is this word scattered. The word scattered is the Greek word, a verb, uh, Diaspero, diaspero, which means it's used in an agricultural context of a farmer sowing or scattering seed in the ground, and it is the root, the Greek root from which we get our word diaspora, which means a scattering, the scattering of the Jewish people through, throughout the world. And so this is uh, the scattering, the diaspora, as it were, of the Christian church, the Christians out of Jerusalem. And the word being used twice, once in 8.1 and again in uh, 8.4, sort of gives us a bracketing or the technical term is an inclusio for this first uh, opening paragraph, introducing us to the topic of what happens uh, among these scattered Christians now that they're no longer in um, in Jerusalem. And what they're doing is they're preaching the word. But what does that mean to preach? This is one of my little pet hobby horses because in much of uh, Christianity today, the average Christian, I would guess without benefit of any scientific poll or survey, that 99% of Christians think there is a difference between preaching and teaching. And if you come out, come to a church like ours from a background where you have a certain uh, rhetorical or oratorical style of, uh, of homiletics that's taught in seminaries today, three points in a poem, a lot of nice stories, a few good jokes, everybody goes home feeling good about themselves, that is a, that's preaching. And that's what should happen on Sunday morning. Uh, what you find in a teaching church, well, you should really be in seminary, I've heard people say, throughout my years as a pastor. You, you'd be a great seminary professor. I would hate teaching in seminary. A typical seminary class, if you're teaching a course on one book of the Bible, let's say exegesis of Romans or exegesis of Acts, you've got 17 or 18 weeks to teach the book in uh, approximately three hours a week. So that comes to about 
a total of, uh, in a three-hour course, maybe 54 hours, and most class courses like that are only two-hour courses, so you might have 36 hours, and when you take out time for midterms and finals and snow days and rain days or whatever, you might have 30 hours to teach your way through a book of the Bible. Now, that's not a whole lot of time. You're, 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 it's seminary is from a word that means a seed, seminal. You're, you're really just giving the seeds of what your students should then take and go out to their pulpits and develop in terms of teaching Romans or John or Revelation or whatever. So uh, we get this idea that the in-depth teaching on a biblical book is what happens in a seminary classroom, not out. You don't want to scare the sheep. You don't want to go out and do that in the pulpit. So if you're getting it in 30 hours in seminary, then you ought to be able to make it through Romans in six or seven hours when you get out in the pulpit. And just to reverse the way it should be, instead of th- you should have 30 hours in seminary so you can go teach the book in 300 hours out in the pew and really dig into it. But we've gotten these things backwards because we want to dumb everything down to the lowest common denominator and, and not, uh, uh, not scare people. But we are to dig into things and really get into uh, teaching the Word, and that's what preaching meant in the original context. It, it has the idea of teaching and explaining the Word, but most significantly explaining the gospel. There are a lot of different ways to explain the gospel. So here we have the uh, emphasis on preaching the Word, and the Greek word that's used here is the word evangelizo which means to give the gospel, where we get our English word evangelism. Evangelizo from uh, angelos or angelizo, which means to uh, proclaim something, to announce something, and the EU prefix means something good, so you're announcing something good. So the word came to mean uh, proclaiming good news, publishing a good report, or proclaiming the gospel. And many times when you read in the... Uh, text of uh, Acts, and it says that um, that they were uh, preaching the word. The Greek word there is not keruso, which is the verb for proclaiming. The word for teaching is didasko, where we get our English word didactic. Um, but here it is evangelizo. That's the primary word that's used that that way in. Um, uh, in Acts, but it also, Caruso is also there, which is very, uh, uh, very interesting and very informative. So they were scattered, and as a result, they went around giving the gospel to everybody. They're evangelizing everybody in Judea and Samaria. Now we're going to focus. We're going to focus on Philip. Philip went down to, and some of your Bibles probably include the uh, article there. They went down to uh, the city of Samaria, which in the English would indicate a specific, uh, specific city. And in other translations, it doesn't, it may say a city. In the Greek text, there's some manuscripts, some older manuscripts that have the article present, which would indicate the city, but it doesn't name the city. So just assuming a, uh, probably a large city significant city, and some assume it would be Samaria. But in uh, the majority of manuscripts, 
There's no definite article there. There's no indefinite article in Greek, uh, so it wouldn't be a city. It just went down to city of Samaria, and it was understood sort of what it would be. Now, there are two large cities, as I pointed out from the map, in, in Samaria. One is uh, Sebaste, which is the new name for the old capital city that had been uh, uh, originally built by uh, uh, Ahab. And this was, um, uh, this was now called Sebaste. But it was basically a Roman city. It was basically Gentile in its makeup. And if we just think a little bit about the book of uh, Acts, just think with me on this. Why, why do, would we say that this city could not be uh, Sebaste uh, because it was primarily a, a Gentile city? Because in Acts 10 and 11, uh, Luke makes a big deal about the first person, the first apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles is Peter as a result of the vision that God gave him at the beginning of Acts chapter 10. And it's only after he took the gospel to the Gentiles in uh, Caesarea, Cornelius' household, that there's a major uh, conference back in Jerusalem to try to figure out what the role of the Gentiles was going to be in the church. They didn't get all up, they didn't think about the Samaritans and what happens here with Philip as including the Gentiles. So that tells us right away that this probably wasn't, uh, the old city of Samaria or Sebaste. It was another city. The only other major city in Samaria was the city of Sychar. And that's important because Sychar is sitting at the base of Mount Gerizim. Now why is Mount Gerizim so important? Well, Mount Gerizim, uh, there was a little valley there. There's Mount Gerizim on one side, Mount Ebal on the other. And when the Jews first came into the land, after they had uh, defeated, uh, Jer- conquered Jericho and, and Ai, they went to Mount Ger- Gerizim, and they put Moses put half the tribes on one side, half the tribes on the other, and they read the entire Mosaic law antiphonally, back and forth with an echo going across across the valley, and they had sort of a, uh, a renewal of the covenant ceremony there before God. So this was a, a significant city in the history, uh, in the history of, of Israel. It's also significant because this was where, uh, later on, this was where, uh, uh, at Sychar, where after the, uh, after the exile that the uh, the Samaritans were kind of a half-breed people, which I'll get into in a minute, and they established a sort of a, a sect of Judaism that was pretty heretical. They rejected most of the Old Testament except for the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in resurrection because there's no real hardcore teaching on resurrection. We would differ with that but a little bit, but they, they would say there's no teaching on resurrection in the Pentateuch. Uh, but they revered Moses, they revered the Sabbath, they revered a few other things. So Sychar was a, a significant city, significant location because it's right there at Mount Gerizim. It gets to the heart of this, of the religion of the Samaritans, which was in competition uh, with, the, uh, with the Judaism of the day. So this is why uh, uh, Philip is going to that city. It's, probably, it's the center of their uh, religious system. 
and he goes there to preach Christ to them. Now, what word do you think is there? If you guess Evangelizo, you're wrong. It's Caruso. It's preached. And now what's important about this? Because in the previous verse, we read that, uh, that everybody went out um, uh, giving the uh, gospel or evangelizing, preaching the gospel, and then here Philip comes down into the word evangelizo, and here he's uh, preaching Christ to them using a different word, Caruso. What this tells us is preaching Christ using Caruso is a synonym for evangelizing. Now think about that, because most of the time that you hear the word, read the word Caruso and you have it in the New Testament, it's talking about proclaiming the gospel. A Carux was a herald. A herald is sent forth from the ruler, and they didn't have, uh, you know, they didn't have uh, Facebook or uh, Twitter or email or CNN or cable news or Fox News or anything at that time. So the only way to get the word out to all the people in town was to send out a herald who would go from block to block and he would verbally announce whatever the announcement would be and then he would move down to the end of the next block and he would shout it out again. So he had to have a great loud booming voice and he was not to be uh, stopped. He was not to be distracted. Nobody was going to ask him questions. He was on the king's mission, and he would just go from block to block making the announcement. Now, that's the image of the evangelist. He is out there making the announcement that God has sent his Savior to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's what preaching is. Preaching isn't three points in a poem. Preaching isn't a certain rhetorical style. Preaching is announcing or proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ has died on the cross and paid the penalty for the sins of the world. So the other key word that is used of the what happens in the pulpits of the churches is the Greek word didaskalos, or didasko is the verb, to teach, and that has the idea of giving instruction. And that is what provides edification and growth for the members of the body of Christ. So preaching, biblically, is related to the proclamation of the gospel, and teaching is the explanation of the Word of God. And this idea of some sort of emotional devotional or some sort of uh, shallow three points in a poem uh, motivational speech has nothing to do with the biblical role of the pastor teacher. He is to proclaim the gospel. Paul told uh, Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, and he is to explain what that means and explain its implication uh, for the Christian life. And so we have here have Philip preaching the gospel, and this is uh, the verb keruso. And what's the response? The response is in verse 6. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, uh, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now, just as a side note, one of the things you run into every now and then with people when you talk about faith, and you're ta- if you talk with somebody from a lordship salvation background, remember lordship salvation are people who think that, that uh, the faith that you have that saves you is a gift from God. 
number one. Faith that you have is a gift from God. He gives you saving faith. It's qualitatively different from any other kind of faith. And the way that you know you have saving faith and not just run-of-the-mill faith is because you will have works in your life that are consistent with being a child of God. And if you don't have works in your life that are consistent with being a child of God, then maybe you didn't believe in Jesus with the right kind of faith. And there are many, many scholars in the evangelical community who teach that. John MacArthur is very well known for that in his Lordship Gospel. And they'll usually go to a passage like uh, in John chapter 2 where Jesus is uh, teaching in Jerusalem and says many people believed on his name, but Jesus didn't trust himself to them. Ah, you see, that's because they weren't real believers. That's their interpretation. But the word that the phrase that is used there in John 2 is uh, is the same phrase that's used everywhere else in the Gospel of John some 95 or 96 times for believing in Christ for eternal life. It's always the same phrase again and again and again and again and again. So it's consistent. So that would mean that these people believe in Jesus, but there's no indication to be a wrong faith. And what they always come back with is, see, the reason you know it's not real saving faith is because they believe because they saw miracles. It's, and later on, they'll quote out of context Jesus saying that uh, greater is the faith of someone who hasn't seen these things. He's not saying that the faith of the person who believes because of the signs or miracles, that that's not real faith. In fact, John, the writer of the gospel, says in a very famous verse in John 20, uh, 13, 31, he says, but these are written that you might believe. What's written? What's the these? Well, if you look at the previous verse, it said, it's talking about the resurrection, and John says, and Jesus did many other signs that are written in this book. But these, these what? These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So miracles was the uh, attestation it gave credibility and credence to the message of the evangelist as this new work was being started uh, in the early church. So uh, the, there were miracles that took place. There was healing that took place. They cast out demons. That's mentioned in Acts 8-7 uh, and Acts 8-8. Eight, eight. And as a result of that, it got the people's attention, and <clears throat> they heeded the thing spoken by Philip, and the word translated heated is the word pros echo in the Greek, which means to pay attention to something or to devote yourself to something. And nautically, it had the idea of the, the captain who kept his, sh- his ship on course. He didn't deviate from his, uh, from his compass course, from what was set. So it's uh, the idea of focusing intently on something. And so we're told the multitudes with one accord focused intently on the things spoken by Philip. There's not an emotional reaction here. They are listening intently. They're hearing him, listening to him, and observing and watching the miracles uh, which, which he performed. And so this sets things up for, uh, for the gospel. Now... Let's understand some significance. Why is it so important that Philip's taking the gospel to Samaria? You ever thought about that? That's really important. There's all kinds of fun questions to ask yourself when you uh, are reading through Scripture, and some of the most fun are why 
does God tell us about this event or that event as opposed to some other event? So I'm going to go back to our map of Samaria here so that we can talk a little bit about the history of, of Samaria. To, because if you're going to really appreciate the impact of what has happened here in these ver- first eight verses, this incredible response to Philip, who is not a Hellenistic Jew, but I mean not a Hebrew Jew, he's a Hellenistic Jew, and that was probably you know, in part of God's sovereign plan because the Hebrew Jews would have really had a problem going up into, uh, up into Samaria. So uh, a, a Hellenized Jew would not have had all of the prejudices against the Samaritans uh, that the others did. So that was uh, probably part of what's going on in the background here. But as I pointed out earlier, until the days of Herod the Great, Samaria was basically... Uh, a term that referred to a territory and to the city that was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, first uh, first built by uh, by Ahab. And in 27 B.C., it was Herod that changed uh, the name of the city. Now, going back into the Old Testament, the two in the two centuries following the defeat of the southern kingdom of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, okay, that occurs 586, kind of get a timeline in your mind, going backwards, uh, Judah's defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Prior to that, in 722, Assyria had been defeated by, I mean, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had been defeated by the Assyrians. Those are the two big events that took place. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel is this territory that we're talking about here. So in 722, the Assyrians uh, swept into this area, and <clears throat> the king of, uh, of I- the northern kingdom of Israel was Hosea, and they were defeated uh, roundly by and soundly by the Assyrians. And the typical procedure for the Assyrians when they conquered a territory was to round up most of the native population so they couldn't start a resurrection, I mean an insurrection, and they would round them up and and relocate them, repopulate different areas and move them all around and scatter them. That's where we get this notion of the ten lost tribes of Israel because it was... Uh, the ten tribes were basically the tribes in the north. But we're also told in Second Kings that as the Assyrian invaders were coming down from the north, those who had any good sense in the northern kingdom sold their property or just evacuated and headed south to get away from the Assyrians. And so many members of those ten tribes went south into Judea, so you didn't lose their, the identity of those ten tribes. There were a number of... Jews that were relocated into other parts of the Assyrian Empire, and they that was the original diaspora or scattering of the Jewish people. And they different communities of Jews have been found in China and India and Afghanistan and all throughout the area that had been controlled. And there are groups that uh, that look kind of Chinese because of some intermarriage, or they look kind of Indian because of intermarriage, but they observe the Sabbath. They, uh, ha- they, they've passed down all the stories from uh, Exodus. They observe all the, the major feast days, Yom Kippur, uh, Passover, etc. And they've been uh, documented as, uh, as Jewish 
in there some heritage back way back, and some of them have made Aliyah or immigration, migrated, migrated to Israel. So this idea of ten lost tribes is uh, is just a myth. And by the way, that's been abused by a system called British Israelitism, where there were some who thought that the Anglo-Saxon people were part of the ten lost tribes of Israel, and so that the British people are really the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Some of you have a little shocked look on your face going, well, that sounds crazy. First time I heard it, that's what I thought. And and first church I was in when I came back to Houston from seminary, there was a guy in the church who was a British. He said, they're, they're, the British are the Israelites. I mean, he was ready to fight and die for that. Great, great fine, whatever. So what, you, what we're talking about is the this period of time between the defeat of, uh, of the northern kingdom and the defeat of the southern kingdom. And what happens uh, during that time is that, th- that there were some uh, various other Gentile people who were relocated by the Assyrians into this territory. Now, there were some Jews who survived and who remained, and over the course of time, over the next, over these centuries, they intermarried with the Gentiles so that the Samaritans were considered to be a mongrel people. They were sort of a Heinz 57 variety people, but they were not considered by the Jews to be Gentiles, but neither were they considered to be Jews. They were just sort of uh, half-breeds out there in no man's land, which is why the uh, the Jews in Judea who had returned from Babylon looked down upon them and uh, and uh, re- rejected them. So this is the uh, the a little bit of the background. And I want you to turn your Bibles. Let's go back to Second Kings. Look, poke around in the Old Testament a little bit to see the, some of the background. What the what the scriptures say about this. All of this is important for being able to understand the cultural situation of the first century and what what is happening there. So in Second uh, Kings chapter 17, it tells us the, the story about the defeat of the northern kingdom of Israel down to about verse uh, 23. And then in verse 24 we read, Then the king of Assyria brought... People from Babylon, Kuthah, Avah, Hamath, and from Sepharvium, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So this is the biblical record of how this took place. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. So they brought, they brought all their pagan religions with them into God's land. And remember, it's still the Holy Land. It's still that land God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They brought all their pagan religions with them and their pagan gods and goddesses, and they're setting up all these pagan temples, and it has irritated the justice of God. And so God is going to bring punishment upon them because they are... Uh, they are desecrating the land that God has set apart uh, for the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so at the end of verse 25, we read, Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, if you remember, I've pointed this out a few times as we've gone through some passages uh, in the Mosaic Law, but there are promises in the Mosaic Law, specifically in 
Uh, Leviticus 26, talking about the blessing and the cursing, the five cycles of discipline. On the blessing part, God says, if you obey all my laws, I will remove all of the wild, ravenous animals from the land. And if you disobey my laws, I will uh, bring them back. I will send them among you. So this fits within this covenant that God has made, the contract God has made with his people, and because there's this violation, this overt, uh, extreme perverted violation of, uh, of the law by these Gentiles in Samaria, God sends lions among them, and there are large numbers of people who are being mauled and killed uh, by these lions, so much so that they have to send a messenger, verse 26, back to the king of Assyria, saying, well, the nations whom you've removed and placed in the cities of Samaria don't know the rituals of the God of the land. And so they have uh, basically uh, angered him, and he sent lions among them, and they're killing them. And the result is, verse 27, the king of Assyria says, well, let's find some priests from the people of Israel who can go back and teach these resettled Gentiles how they are to properly respect the God of the land of Israel so that he won't be sending these lions around and killing everybody. And I thought, that well, that's a, a fascinating little uh, story there about how uh, one of the priests, then in verse 28, one of the priests whom they'd carried away from Samaria came, dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord, how they should respect and worship and obey the Lord. And so what happens here is there develops a syncretism that is where they begin to blend the, 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 the teachings of the Torah with some of the uh, pagan ideas, but they are going to begin to worship, uh, worship God. We're told about this in verse 29. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own, put them in the shrines and the high places where the Samaritans had made every nation the cities where they dwelt. And uh, so, so it goes. So this is the historical background of a separate Samaritan religion, a separate Samaritan religion. And this uh, Samaritan religion was uh, quite distinct from, from the uh, biblical Judaism of that time. The Samaritans only believe, believed that only the Pentateuch had authority. The prophets, the writings had no authority. They were monotheistic. They worshipped the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They did not believe in polytheism, even though they had the same problems with the false gods of the pagans that, that their ancestors had had. They honored Moses. They observed the Sabbath. They observed circumcision on the eighth day for male children. They observed the Torah. However, the Jews in Judea uh, rejected them as complete heretics, thought of them as, as sort of semi-Gentiles and as a mongrel race. The Jews despised them and hated them and would go out of their way to avoid them. Now, on the Samaritan side, they do give their own uh, interpretation of events. They claim that they are descendants from the Jewish tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. This is seen in John 4.12 in the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well. They, uh, the Samaritans believe that uh, the exile of uh, the Israelites in 722 was not as extensive as the other Jews claimed, that it was only a partial resettlement 
and it wasn't as large as the Assyrians claimed. And in order to account for the hostility that developed between the Samaritans and the Jews, the Samaritans uh, believed that the Jews were guilty of apostasy. You see, you always claim that your opponent is guilty of your own sins. We see this frequently in modern politics. Um, You always come out and claim that the other side is doing what you're doing before they have time to discover what you're doing. And that way you can uh, uh, maybe have a little success. So the uh, Samaritans set up uh, alter- alternate sanctuaries, and they set up a temple on Mount Gerizim. Now, this is where things really get fun, because after the, when the Jews returned from Babylon, they started to rebuild the city. And when they first came back, the Samaritans sought to uh, uh, help them, and their help was rejected. Well, they're not clean. They're not of appropriate, they're not Levites. They're not appropriate for the rebuilding of the temple. And this story is told in Nehemiah. So if you just turn over a few books to your right, you'll come to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah was the uh, man who was like Daniel. He was high. He was sort of the chief of staff within Artaxerxes' government. He is the cupbearer, but that's, he had great power. He's not just a butler. He had, uh, he had great power and he had, uh, 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 pleaded with the king to send him back, petitioned the king to send him back to finish completing the walls in, is, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And <clears throat> this tells his, his story. And so if you read in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, then you read about the opposition. It's quite interesting, especially if you read it against the background of the modern uh, Palestinian-Arab uh, conflict with, with Israel. Their leader was a man named Sanballat, who was a uh, native Samaritan. Uh, <clears throat> and so the first verse mentions Sanballat, Tobiah, I guess, from the Arab. Who knew that the Arab-Israeli conflict went back this far? This is about somewhere around 450 B.C. And the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it. And so, verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me and said, Come, let us meet together among the villages of the plain of Ono. See, they're still trying to negotiate peace. It hasn't gotten any better. Uh, so Nehemiah says, I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease? I leave it and go down to you. But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. So he continues to say, No, I'm not going to come and negotiate. So this is the story in... Um, in chapter 6, and finally what Nehemiah does is he just rejects them, and so they go off and have a little pity party, and then they no longer want to be friends uh, friends with the Jews. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, they it was around this time that they built an alternate sanctuary, an alternate temple on Mount, uh, Mount Ger- Gerizim, and it was throughout this next period of time from about four, 400 up to about 200 that we have the Greek period. This is the time of, of uh, Alexander the Great, the death of Alexander the Great about 327 B.C., the breakup of the Greek Empire into uh, four different parts, and one part goes to the Seleucids, and they have control of Syria and Turkey, and another part goes to uh, the Ptolemies, and they're down in Egypt, and what's between Syria and Egypt? It's Israel, so they're constantly fighting 
over the land in between. And for the first part of the, the, this period, the Ptolemies are in control, and then it went to the uh, went to the Seleucids. And the Samaritans tended to be uh, somewhat too friendly with the Seleucids, and the Seleucids produced. Uh, wonderful leaders like Antiochus uh, IV, known as Epiphanes, who is the type of the Antichrist that we see predicted, uh, his rise predicted in Daniel chapter 7. And he's the one who went in and sacrificed a pig on the altar in the uh, temple in Jerusalem. So he was a, a lovely individual and uh, really inured himself to the Jews. They, they, uh, the Seleucids passed laws that it was a death penalty for a Jewish, uh, for Jewish parents to have their children circumcised. If anybody was found with a copy of even a verse from the Torah, from any of the scriptures, then the whole family would be uh, executed and killed. And this eventually led to uh, a revolt uh, led by the Maccabees against uh, the Seleucids, and one of the eventual uh, Maccabean uh, leaders was a high priest and ruler by the name of John Hyrcanus. And uh, John Hyrcanus, in about 128 B.C., uh, took a Jewish army north into uh, to uh, Samaria, and uh, he destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, just, just wiped it out, ultimately destroyed it. So the the the, the Samaritans uh, have nursed this little uh, hatred and desire for revenge against the Jews for over a hundred years. And in six A.D., this would be about the time that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ would be about ten years old, eight years old, something like that. Uh, the Samaritans. Uh, snuck in in the cover of night onto the Temple Mount, and they brought uh, uh, bags of bones and some dead bodies and carcasses and placed them in, uh, in strategic locations all over the Temple Mount and in the Temple, which would desecrate the Temple on the Temple Mount and just really angered and upset. You can just imagine how inflammatory that was for the Jews in Jerusalem. And so they were always at this point of, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being a fully uh, uh, full warfare, they were at about a 9. And this went on uh, consistently throughout this entire period. They had uh, tr- tremendous animosity and hatred for each, for each other. And it's in that context of these this hated enemy up in Samaria that Philip takes the gospel. But there's precedent for what's going on with Philip. I want you, I want to look at two things very quickly because we've taught I've taught through them before, but I want to pull this together for you. Look in the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter ten, Gospel of Luke chapter ten. And these two events that I'm going to focus on here are the two events that help you understand what's going on here with Philip going to uh, Samaria. Luke chapter 10, Jesus has this meeting, conversation, question and answer session with a certain lawyer who's testing him in verse 25, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What's written in the law? He just thought, Jesus is good. He always answers a question with a question and throws it back on him. 
He says, well, what does the law say? What is your reading of it? And uh, the the uh, uh, lawyer says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, some of the some of the manuscripts don't have all of that. They most of them end with with all your strength, which is where it should end. It's interesting in the Hebrew. You go back at, to the Hebrew. It says, you shall love the Lord your God uh, with all of your heart, which is everything inside of you, your whole immaterial nature, with all of your soul, which is going to emphasize more of your uh, mental capacity, with all your, and it doesn't say strength in the original. It says with all your, and then it uses the word ma'od. Ma'od is, the, is a Greek adjective that is translated 98% of the time with the word very. You are to love the Lord your God with all your very. It's an idiom. It really means you, you, when you don't have a word left, you, you've climbed to the epitome of vocabulary. You love him with, you've already described everything you can think of with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your very, with everything you've got is what he's getting to. Okay. And so Jesus answers him, says, well, you answered correctly. Don't do this and you will live. But this guy wanting to justify himself says, okay, the scripture says I'm to love my neighbor as myself. Well, who's my neighbor? See, he's thinking, oh, I've got you. And so Jesus gives him this little story. He says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem. You always go down from Jerusalem. Uh, the, the Acts 8 passage says that uh, Philip went down from Jerusalem to Samaria, probably Sychar, went down because you're going down in elevation. So this is going down from Jerusalem here to Jericho over here. And that's only about 25 miles. Uh, he's walking down from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. He gets ambushed by a, by a bunch of uh, thugs out on the road who strip him of his clothes and wound him and depart. So they, uh, they beat him up and take all of his clothes, and he's half dead, and a priest comes along. priest sees him on the road and crosses over to the other side, and doesn't do anything about it. Then a Levite comes by, and he does the same thing. And here are two religious leaders who are supposed to be implementing the law, and they try to ignore this guy on the side of the road. Then Jesus says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Now, the the guy's in the ditch who's been beaten up and robbed is, is Jewish. This is a Samaritan. The question was... Who's your neighbor? The Samaritan, Jesus is saying the Samaritan is the one who's, of all of these, he's the one who acts like the neighbor, the the person who is loving the Jewish person. He says he comes, he sees him, has compassion, goes to him, binds his wounds, pour oil and wine on him, sets him on his animal, takes him home, takes care of him. On the next day when he departs, he goes out, gives him a little money, so he has some money to spend. And then Jesus ends by saying, so which of these three, the Samaritan, the Levite of the priest, which of them is a neighbor to the one who fell ill? Interesting turn of events. What's he illustrating? He's illustrating the kind of unconditional love that we're supposed to have. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's picturing the kind of unconditional love that God has in sending Christ at the cross. Now, the next example we have, and I'm not going to go through the whole story. It's a story about Jesus 
deciding that when he needs to go from uh, Jerusalem up to Galilee, rather than going through Samaria, I mean going across the river and going up through uh, Perea, he's going to go up through Samaria. And so they, he comes to Sychar, which is where I think Philip is, right there at Mount Gerizim, because that's the center of the Samaritan religion. And uh, he goes to a plot of ground that Jacob had given to, to Joseph, or there's a well, and there's a Samaritan woman that comes out to draw water, and Jesus sits there and he says, well, give me something to drink. And his disciples had gone into town to get uh, food, and the woman looks at him because this is just, uh, she's never seen anything like that. A Jew is talking to her, number one. That just never happened. And number two, it's a Jewish man that's talking to her, and that also would never happen. And so she says, well, why is it that you being a Jew are asking me for something to drink? And I'm a Samaritan woman. You know, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And uh, Jesus answered and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is witnessing to this Samaritan woman who at the end of the conversation comes to realize he's the prophet that Moses had predicted. And she gets so excited, she runs back into town and starts telling everybody that the prophet who Moses had predicted, the Messiah, is out here at the well, come out and see him. And everybody comes out from town and they see Jesus and they respond, um, respond to the gospel. And so there's a, a, a great response to the gospel there. All of this is just a few years before the episode that we're looking at in Acts chapter 8. And so God's prepared the soil here in several different ways, and it is an ongoing picture of God's grace to those who are undeserving and of how God is breaking down, breaks through the barriers that human beings set up, saying, well, I'm not going to go witness to them because... You know, why do I want them in heaven? Why would I want to uh, talk to that person? They're Muslim or they're Hindu or they're from some other country or they, uh, uh, they don't live life or live their life in a place that I'm comfortable going to and they believe different things than I do and I'm just not going to take the gospel to them. But that's not how God works. That's not what it means to love your neighbor. So, this is a tremendous and shocking picture, by the way. The at first century, you hear what Philip has done in taking the gospel to, to this town in Samaria and their response in believing in Jesus as, as the Messiah. Would, it would have been three-inch above-the-fold headlines in the Jerusalem Times the next morning. And, and all of the Jews would have just been judging and condemning all these idiot Christians for going and talking to the Samaritans. But it is, it's just going to blow everything wide open. And part of it is, part of the result is it's going to create even more division between the Christians and the Jews, uh, in, uh, Israel at this particular time because of the, uh, tremendous success that the Christians were having, and it's all because of the Holy Spirit who's working in and through them. So we'll come back and look at that more next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see the uh, tremendous uh, story here, the reality behind just these few eight verses and realize what a tremendous uh, revolutionary event this was for Philip to take the gospel to the Samaritans, for them to respond and for 
the truth of the gospel to be so uh, openly accepted and to have such a tremendous impact uh, in, in Samaria. And Father, we know that the Holy Spirit who empowered Philip and who empowers the gospel throughout the ages is still working today, and yet he doesn't operate apart from people like Philip who are willing to take the gospel, explain the gospel to other people. And it is as we explain the gospel and witness to others that God the Holy Spirit is able to use that in order to convince people the gospel and bring them to salvation. And Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the need to be uh, spiritually courageous like Philip and to take the gospel to those who are in our periphery, no matter who they are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.